Welcome to the latest episode of Wait, What? Sports Biz Chat with BP and McGee. The podcast where we take a oftentimes cynical, sometimes irreverent, and even sometimes serious look at the business of sports. I'm your co-host, Tim McGee. And I'm David Paro. David, what's on your mind? Well, last week we had an NFL franchise sell for a record amount, $4.65 billion. Yet, it's not the biggest story in the sports business, and not by a long shot. And that's because this live golf situation and kind of its war with the PGA Tour has just dominated the sports business news. Um, Tim, I don't think I have ever in my career had a story that has dominated as much as this has. This one has. I, that I've gotten so many questions about my opinion. Uh, what do you think about this? What should the players be doing? Um, would you would you take the money if Greg Norman came to you? Those type of, of questions. Um, and it just really, really has dominated uh, the news. And on top of that, the U.S. Open tees off this week at the Country Club in Brookline, Massachusetts, where several of the players uh, that had defected to the Live Golf Tour uh, will be back having been quali- or having qualified for the U.S. Open. So it's just really a wild time in the world of professional golf. Yeah, they, they say that... Um... You know, the sports belong on the back page, but this is one of those stories that's made its way to the to the front page. And um, and I don't see it coming off anytime quickly. Uh, you know, now, the, you know, it, it's interesting. We, we've been talking about live golf within the context of what uh, uh, the Saudis did to um, Jamal Khashoggi, right? The, the, the journalist working for the Washington Post, who was killed and dismembered um, because he deigned to speak out against the Saudi royal family. And I was talking to uh, a dear friend of mine the other day who lost her husband in 9-11. And as horrific as what they did to Khashoggi was family in the Saudi government complicit in the 9-11 bombings, right? 15 of the 19 hijackers were Saudis. Uh, Osama bin Laden himself was a Saudi national, um, and there is very strong evidence that these hijackers were funded, um, if not by the Saudi royal family, then by the government writ large. And so um, it, it it has become a story where um, you can you can say, well, you wouldn't turn down that money, but you can't not talk about human rights implications and the geopolitical implications of being involved with the Saudis. And I don't care how Greg Norman or Phil Mickelson or anybody else tries to spin. I think you're right. These questions aren't going to go away. They're going to get posed everywhere these players go, although it sounds as though they were trying to shut those type of questions down over in London during the opening event this past weekend. But they're going to—they're facing them here uh, at the U.S. Open, and and they're going to continue. So it's going to have to factor into the decision of other golfers thinking of defecting over. Since we last talked about this, Bryson DeChambeau, one of the hottest stars, not the most liked guy on the tour, certainly, uh, has decided to go over. I think the PGA Tour is probably fine with that. Patrick Reed as well. The tour is definitely fine with him going because he's been a bit of a thorn in the side. But these are exciting players that have great games and could move the needle for them, may not move the needle here, um, but although DeChambeau probably does. But these questions are there, and they're, and they're absolutely not going to go away based on the point that you were talking about. These things are going to continue to come up. But there are a couple other things on the business side that, that are important as well. One of the things I keep hearing is – well, the NBA does business with China. Every corporation almost Talk. does business with China. False equivalence. Show oh, me where correct. President Xi pays pays the NBA players directly for their services. Right. That's the point. The This is an entirely funded by the public investment fund of Saudi Arabia. Um, Adam Silver is not an employee of China. 
And this is one of the things that came up in uh, Commissioner Jay Monahan's interview, a rare one, by the way, on the final round of the RBC Canadian Open this weekend, um, where he, he talked about, he goes, I don't work for Saudi Arabia as a direct dig at Greg Norman, of course. Um, and then the, you know, kind of the pull quote was, ask yourself, the players that are considering it or have moved, ask yourself if you've ever had to apologize for playing on the PGA Tour, right? which was a smart line. The rest of his interview wasn't all that great. Honestly, he came across as nervous, understandably, and a bit defensive. Again, probably understandably. Uh, but he had a fairly easy interviewer in Jim Nance, who, as a CBS guy, is in partnership with the PGA Tour. Uh, but earlier on Saturday, Nance and Nick Faldo took the subject up and they went pretty hard at Live Golf and what were these golfers thinking. So listen, it's, it's, it's a huge story. I agree with you. It's not going away for a while. Um, and there are a whole variety of other things that have to, you know, play out. One of them is, in, other than the USGA and the US Open, what are the other majors going to do? What is the DP World Tour going to do, the European Tour going to do? Um, originally, we thought they were going to be lockstep with the PGA Tour. I've heard some different things, so we'll have to see uh, if they, you know, dump their players. I heard that Dustin Johnson has actually applied for membership on the DP World Tour, which is fascinating development. I want to say one more thing about Dustin's defection, which I don't think has been covered enough. He was a longtime ambassador for RBC, Royal Bank mm -hmm. of Canada. Um, we talked about them dropping him very quickly when he made his announcement. RBC is the sponsor of the Canadian Open. So it's the RBC Canadian Open, the PGA Tour event that played this past week. So he dropped and went to play Live Golf Tour right before an RBC-sponsored tour. I think they had more than just a little reason to be a little annoyed at that. Um, but the potential ripple effects of that, if more people are doing this and, you know, the value of the PGA Tour seems to be lessened in the eyes of these brands that have supported golf for such a long time, um, do they start thinking about their large investments? So, I mean, this has so many implications. It's crazy. Yeah. And putting aside the geopolitical ones for a while, there's a, there's a lot of, you know, things. I question the business model of live golf, right? Not, not that they don't have enough money to continue to fund it, but I don't care who you are. You go into business to make money. Right. Um, and the money that's being paid out, I don't see how that's recouped with, sponsor dollars and, and media rights deals, although they did sign a media rights deal with the zone. That's one thing. The other thing I would say is that, yeah, Reed and DeChambeau, and there may be some other sort of, you know, players that are typically on the leaderboard who are going to join this thing is, but there's been um, a great um, resurgence in uh, sort of the competition in on the PGA tour with a lot of these young players. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure they'll continue to shine brightly as well, which, um, you know, which bodes well for the for the continued success of the PGA Tour, regardless of what other competitive entities might be out there. I think so. But the money is crazy and it's not to be run as a separate business. This is a public relations expenditure. It's absolutely what this is. This is the absolute easiest to understand concept of sports washing. And the money is crazy. Charles Schwartzel, who had a decent you know, round, run at Matt Augusta this season, but he's been in nothing on, the, on any tours recently. He wins going away in the inaugural Live Golf event in London. He won $4 million. That's on top of whatever he was guaranteed just to show up. Rory McIlroy, who won a hard-fought battle over Tony Finau and Justin Thomas, in a really exciting PGA Tour event in front of a huge crowd. He won 1.5. And he didn't get an appearance fee. I get it. If I were a young guy and they came throwing those money at me, I don't have to work. Some of these guys are even saying, 
I don't want to work that hard anymore. I got the guaranteed money. I think they got to tighten up their lines a little bit. Yeah, if you if you the PR message is not entirely positive, and it's been even close to being entirely positive. So then the question becomes: If the pressure remains on them, is it worth uh, worth it to the Saudis to continue to be put under this scrutiny? Because the issue doesn't seem to be going away, as we've said. And we're drawing attention to the exact type of thing they don't want us to be talking about. I think you're right. And while everybody's focused on the money, saying they'll never run out of money, which is probably true, they could fund this thing to whatever level. They may say that it's not worth it. That may be the more realistic reason they they folded at some point. Uh, I think we're going to listen. We're going to have to see. There's one other thing I want to talk about that's a, that people have asked to say, well, the Players don't have control of their own name, image, and likeness as it relates to actual tournament play. Well, that's naive and not understanding how media rights work. Uh, Obviously, the PGA Tour consolidates the rights. They have the rights to sell. They maximize the revenue that way. That helps increase purses. That allows for this huge charitable platform that they have. If a player had their rights to monetize their in-tournament play, that would deflate the rights value, obviously, going in. So I think people need to understand that when they argue that, why don't they have their rights to their name, image, and likeness as it relates to tournament play? Yeah, there is nothing to prevent those golfers from, from profiting off of their name, image, and likeness through sponsorships, through appearances through other ancillary businesses that they may or may not start when they, you know, become, uh, you know, become uh, financially secure enough to do so. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, that, that argument does not hold water. Uh, you don't say that, well, LeBron James doesn't get to control his name, image, and likeness during the four quarters he's playing for the Lakers, but does it stop him from being the first ever NBA, you know, billionaire while, while still playing? Hey, speaking of money, I I read this and I thought it was a joke, but it talked about, you know, ironic. Apparently when Mickelson walked to the first tee, the song playing, his walk-up song, was the OJ's For the Love of Money. (laughs) Which if if you're an interpreter of lyrics like I am, because I love lyrics, this whole song is about how people do really bad things for fun. So then the question becomes, is he clueless? Is he incredibly self-deprecating? Or did he just get the hell trolled out of him by the guy who controlled the music as he was walking up to the first page? <laughs> Could have been all three. Um, anyway, I got a kick out of that. All right, on a little bit happier note, NBA ratings. We're, we are getting what we talked about last week, which is a great series. Right? Warriors won last night, go up 3-2. They can close it out. Um, but after, after ratings being down fairly significantly in game one, um, over the course of the series, I didn't see the ratings for last night, but they've been up 11% from last year. Um, so uh, we've, we've got a, a great series. Yeah, it really has been. Um, the games have gone back and forth, even though a couple of them have had some you know, pretty big differences in the final score. The games have been hard fought. Um, so it is good to see that pick up, I think. Uh, the Overall, the playoffs have been fantastic. And, and you know me, I, I went out on a limb before the playoffs started and said whoever wins is going to come out of the East. Um, but you also know that I'm, well, I'm not going to change it. And I'm going to tell you why I'm not going to change it because I'm also a a trading card collector, as you know. Um, and, uh, I was going through some cards last week and I saw a couple of nice Steph Curry rookie cards, um, that might get a little bump in value if if he brings home another championship. Um, boy, can he shoot a three pointer, huh? (laughs) Yeah. And last night was the first time in any playoff appearance he's made where he didn't actually hit one. I love yeah. the fact that after every game, there's something, you know, 
talked about. Draymond's podcast is affecting his play. Uh, Steph Curry, the greatest playoff you know player of all time type of thing. And then he has one of his lesser games last night, and Clay Thompson stepped up, and various and, and, and Andrew Wiggins really stepped up. Uh, so it's just funny how the story is changing after every game. These are two good teams with a lot of star players that have the ability to do different things and people step up at different times. That's what good teams do. So it's yeah, nice they have, being reflected in the play in the ratings. Yeah, they've built that team to win a championship and um, kudos to Steve Kerr. They're one game from it, not guaranteed by any stretch of the imagination. But yeah, but yeah it, it's, uh, you know, it's sort of that whole uh, mentality of next man up, right? That's right. So, hey, at the beginning of the segment, I mentioned that the Denver Broncos had sold for a record $4.65 billion. And it doubles the record NFL team number, which was just sold just four years ago. David Tepper bought the Carolina Panthers for $2.3 billion. So think about that in four years. It doubled. Okay, it doubled. That's not that surprising. But doubled in, it's, we're now in the billions. Uh, and making it the largest sale of a U.S. sports operation uh, of all time, the Mets being the previous one, uh, which happened in 2020. So it's yeah, pretty significant, I'm, and it's it's been bought by one of the heirs of the Walton family of Walmart fame, uh, and it will be led by Rob Walton uh, and his daughter and son-in-law. So I'm figuring that's a great father-daughter, son-in-law, little side project. Here's a guy who could write a check to pay for that and yeah he'll 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 notice it in his checkbook but he won't be shifting money from the money market account to cover it right one of the wealthiest people on the planet and poor john elway who had an opportunity to buy into the franchise when he retired and chose or was unable to i'm not sure which but uh he he would uh he wouldn't have to have health insurance to pay for his stupidness contracture if he had to if he had taken advantage of that opportunity. Well, listen, Walmart is, you know, one of the legendary American companies. So not, not really surprising that, uh, you know, we have someone from that type of a retailer that ends up taking over one of the uh, great sports franchises in this country. A little different than being led by a private equity owner at this point. Um, Although there is some private equity money involved. Uh, so that's going to be interesting. I mean, Denver Broncos, a very successful, very important franchise to the NFL. Hey, one other thing that just broke. Uh, MLS just redid its broadcast deal, and it's going to Apple TV+. Plus. Yeah, I'm, su- I'm surprised by that. Um, I guess I shouldn't be, but I just assumed it would stay with uh, the majority of their games would stay on a cable network. Well, listen, ESPN has been a great backer of MLS, and I think that was what most people figured it was going to happen. They were going to return to there. I think what Don Garber is saying is that they have a younger, more tech-savvy audience. Uh, Apple's a great brand fit, uh, and they feel like this streaming aspect is going to be a differentiator for them. They got a lot of money, a lot more than they were getting. Um, My understanding is about $250 in cash uh, and then there's some sort of share for the league as subscribers grow so an interesting so that would model. put it yeah it would put it at three times the current deal right which i believe is 90 million and if i'm the showrunner for ted lasso i'm thinking how do we get him from the premier league over to an mls club in some future season or at the very least, have Richmond come over and play some friendlies against the oh, clubs. Dude, you are on to something there. Nice. I like it. I think that's a wonderful time to take a break. We have a real exciting guest to talk about. Uh, teach us all a little more about what's going on in the world of lacrosse. It's time for our guest. We are really pleased to introduce our most recent guest. Uh, Mark Riccio is the CEO of USA Lacrosse. Mark has had a a long and storied career on the brand side, on the agency side, on the property side, and now he has been handed the mantle from longtime CEO Steve Stenerson to bring lacrosse to the next level. Uh, So, Mark, welcome. 
Thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. It's thrilled uh, to see you guys. Great to be here. So, Mark, let's get right into it. Um, you know, I talked a little bit about your background. What was it about the role at USA Lacrosse that really appealed to you? Uh, for me, it was really to get back with a property and not only a, a property um, that I, I knew so well in the sense of that I played the game, had been following the game. Now, I was not a lacrosse insider, uh, but certainly have a passion for lacrosse because I certainly you know, played it growing up, played it in uh, college. Uh, and when this job opened up, you know, I threw my hat in the ring and survive in advance, survive in advance. Here I am. And the agency world was awesome because I learned so much. And in fact, I've invoked uh, some of those learnings here and encourage our people here to engage with agencies because you can get so much outside expertise uh, that you might not get your business internally. So uh, the opportunity to kind of bring all of that learning uh, but apply it back to a property to me was super exciting. Hey, Mark, we want to take a bit of a step back and make sure people are really understanding what the role of a mm. national governing body is and how it fits into, say, a larger federation. Just give us kind of the background on the ecosystem. That's actually a great question, because I do get that question a lot. It's like, what does USA Lacrosse do? What does a governing body do? So. I'm going to put it in context of first USA lacrosse and where it sits in the international ecosystem, to your point. So world lacrosse is the international federation. It's recognized by the IOC. It is the only lacrosse international, uh, internationally recognized federation. We are then members of world lacrosse. And there are 77 other nations that are members of world lacrosse. So we talk about globality of the game. It's elevated and increased quite a bit. So um, Uganda, um, South Africa, Japan, Korea, et cetera, in terms of all having recognized governing bodies within lacrosse. Where USA Lacrosse sits then is our job is to fuel the growth, enrich the experience, and fill the best national teams in the U.S., that's our mandate. So feel the best national teams. That's a unique responsibility of a governing body. And then in terms of fueling the growth, enriching the experience, that's much about participation at the youth level and providing an infrastructure and some consistencies to that process. Tell us a little bit about your recent rebranding of the organization from U.S. lacrosse to USA lacrosse. Now, to a lot of people who aren't in our industry, it might not seem like a big deal, but it is. So tell us a little bit about the strategy behind that um, and uh, and what's next. Yeah, so the, the strategy started before I got here. I'm, I'm lucky to kind of pick up the momentum from that. And there was a couple things about it. One is U.S. Uh, lacrosse. You wanted to understand that we're about the entire United States, right? So you, USA, and that was part of it. When you look at other Olympic and national governing bodies, it's USA basketball, USA hockey, USA um, volleyball, uh, USA track and field. And we are not liar in that. And so as we aspire to be uh, an Olympic sport, having the USA moniker was important. The other was rebranding our logo to a badge uh, to represent um, various components of the stars and stripes. You can see both of those elements within our new logo. And also the lacrosse head is now a more uniform lacrosse head of both the men's and the women's game, which we represent both. So the lift has been great. The merch and the apparel and the product have been great. People have really embraced it uh, within the lacrosse community, but outside of lacrosse community, because it's much more self-explanatory what you are and what your mandate is. Mark, obviously one of the things when you're looking to field great national teams is making sure that there are great athletes playing this sport. Talk to us a little about the trends that you're seeing, the things that you're excited about uh, in the growth of lacrosse in the United States, as well as where are we seeing particular growth, maybe in areas that haven't been traditionally hot danced. Sure. So lacrosse is traditionally known as the Northeast Corridor, and that remains today. You know, certainly there's a lot of lacrosse played in that Northeast Corridor, but where you're seeing a lot of growth is actually in um, 
warm weather year round, and I would call them football states, Georgia, North Carolina, Florida, Texas, California, you see significant growth in those markets. And we're digging in a bit deeper into why and how, but a couple of the reasons are it's gender equitable. So you got boys and girls playing and that, that in and of itself has provided a great platform for growth. The other, it's a mix of basketball and hockey. If you really look at the game of lacrosse, it's played much like basketball in terms of fast breaks and two on threes and pick and roll and team defense, team offense. And that is transferable for a lot of people. They get that when they start to pick up and play the game. Uh, and it's also got a bit of physicality to it. So you certainly can run. Your athleticism can win the day. But it's also got a bit of physicality to it that people like. But they're less concerned about things like concussions as examples. So that's where we're, we're digging into why and how we're seeing the growth in those markets. Uh, but what's great for us, is a lot of great athletes come out of those markets. Um, and there's real growth opportunity there. So, Mark, are we going to see lacrosse in the 2028 Olympic Games in Los Angeles? Well, I certainly hope so. So a little bit about that, actually. We're in the process now. And when I say we, the process goes through World Lacrosse as the International Federation. But as you guys know, LA 2028 has the ability to add a few sports to the program. Now, that is limited by there's a 10,500-person athlete cap. So what lacrosse did is created a discipline of sixes. That's six on six. It's a smaller field size, roughly, say, 70 yards by 40 yards, give or take. Same field size for men and women. It's six on six. So what that does, it allows you to have a smaller squad size, which means your athlete delegation uh, is not as large when you want to try to get men's and women's teams from multiple nations in the games. The other thing by having a smaller squad size, it allows for developing countries to field more competitive teams because they just need better, less better athletes. And so sometime over the next month, we will hopefully hear from LA 2028 that we are one of a few select sports that get the opportunity to respond to an RFI and present their case to be in the games that process takes a year, uh, so there's no guarantee. We're cautiously optimistic we'll, we'll get a chance to put our best foot forward. But from there, it's going to come down to some issues around, you know, certainly the globality of the game. And as I said, there's 77 nations now that play, so hopefully we can check that box. It's gender equitable, the complexity of putting on the games, but also the commercial viability of lacrosse in the game. Will you sell more tickets because lacrosse is in? Will you drive more eyeballs? Will you drive more sponsorship? Um, and will you engage more people if lacrosse is in the game? And I would say we stand a pretty good chance there. You know, men, women, the quality of play is excellent. The engagement from our fan base is fantastic. So, again, fingers crossed, but that's the process uh, with which the Olympics uh, is on the horizon for us. And you feel working with the other national governing bodies around the world that have developed, a, I guess, a growing lacrosse infrastructure that there's a lot of coordination on that and the other top countries that are playing this sport are pretty behind this idea very much so mainly because when you go to another country if you're olympic recognized as a sport you get government funding so it's also critical to the global growth of the game to get that olympic recognition because that will drive funding and therefore growth in countries outside of the u.s because all of our funding actually comes from private donations and, you know, USL lacrosse is part of our mandate is generate revenue so we can actually field all these teams. So that's a big part of it. And what World Lacrosse has also done is certainly driven growth in Africa, as an example. You know, Africa is the next frontier in terms of athletic development. You see the NFL making a play there, the NBA making a play there. It's not, not, not a secret, but also commercial growth. And so recently we, you know, um, the African uh, Lacrosse Association. So we've got a continental federation in Africa. We have uh, several new nations now participating in Africa, but that's in addition to Asia and Europe. And then of course the Pan American Lacrosse Association, which represents us, Lacrosse Canada and South America. So there's definitely a global push uh, and global support behind the Olympics because we all recognize that's that's gonna, the rising tide is gonna be able to raise all boats. So Mark, we, uh... We have an upcoming international competition here in the United States. A lot of people might not be familiar with. So talk to us a little bit about uh, the upcoming women's championships next month in San Diego. And what are the hopes for the U.S. women's national team? 
Yeah, so we actually will be hosting the World Lacrosse Women's World Championships June 29th to July 9th in Towson, Maryland. We will have 30 nations. Uh, and it's going to be some awesome lacrosse for 10, 10, 10 days. These are the best lacrosse players in the world. Um, and and I, I would like to say, you know, we've got some of the best ourselves in terms of our, our women's team. Um in fact, we just had an uh, exhibition game out on Stony Brook, Long Island with our women's team because they're in training camp mode right now. But you'll have teams from Canada, Uganda, Japan, um, Europe, Australia. Um, and it's going to be some fantastic lacrosse. There's going to be a youth jamboree. And what you'll see is the quality of the game continues to acceler accelerate. Um, the athletes are getting better, faster, stronger. The quality of the play uh, is better, faster, stronger, quicker, more creative, interesting. Um, and we're pretty excited to be able to host in our home country because uh, it's a way to showcase, you know, some great lacrosse in, in Maryland area, which is, of course, you know, a hotbed of, of the game. Mark, ESPN has for a while been the home of college lacrosse and has done a great job, I think, covering the sport. Um, Premier Lacrosse League kicked off a new media rights deal with ESPN. Can you talk a little about the importance of having that big of a stature of a media partner and what it means for the sport overall? Yeah, it's a great point. If you go right, walk right down the line, ESPN goes big in NCAA, and of course, lacrosse is a big part of it. The men's and women's Final Four weekend did fantastic in terms of attendance, but also their viewership numbers, you know, topping out between five and 600,000 viewers, respectively, for each of the two uh, championship games. ESPN did a deal with Athletes Unlimited which is the women's pro league, which by the way, will be playing their season at our headquarters in Sparks, Maryland. They did the deal with the NLL. They did the deal with the PLL, which is the indoor and outdoor league respect uh, pro league respectfully. And they did a three year or three event deal with world lacrosse for the world championships, which of course includes uh, the men's and women's world championships and the under 21 championships in Limerick, Ireland this summer. And why they did it because it's upside it's growth opportunity. There's very few sports that are both gender equitable that have a great engaged fan base and then have actually growth upside and lacrosse checks all of those boxes. And so ESPN's, you know, they're, they're smart, you know, and they recognize growth opportunity. And for us, uh, it's a great platform to showcase the game to new audiences. And I think that's one of our great needs in this game. We do a great job talking to ourselves on lacrosse. We got to do a better job talking to new audiences and ESPN provides that opportunity. I mean, it's the worldwide leader in sport, and you know we're thrilled to be tied together with ESPN on multiple levels. What are some of your plans for growing the sport? I mean, it's the beginning of the of the uh, millennium. It was growing double digits every year. It slowed down a little bit, but it continues to grow as a sport, which I love to see. Um, but what are some of your plans? and ideas for growing the continued growth of the, of the sport. How much time do we have? <laughs> as much as you need. I could go for a long time. There's a couple of points that I, I think. So one of the, one of the challenges when you walk into any sport organization is competing interests. You, you know, especially when you talk about high school, excuse me, youth to high school, to college, to pro, to elite level and in international competition, uh, there's competing interests. But what I found along the way is there's one common theme, and that's the desire to grow. And so I brought my commercial thinking to this whole approach in that every one of these entities has stakeholders, investors, or business models. The only, any, the only way any of those business models or those investors get return on investment is to grow your enterprise value. The grow, only way to grow your enterprise value is to increase your addressable audience. And so I'm highly focused on that because that is common ground for everybody. Growing our addressable audience in terms of players, fans alike, is in everybody's best interest, whether you're a pro league, a manufacturer, a media company, that is the common denominator. So the way to do that is focus first and foremost. So focus on how, what we do as a governing body. And that is, one, is generating revenue. You know, in 501c3 mission-based organization world, sometimes generating revenue is looked at as um, not appropriate. Well, the more money we make, the more money we get to put back into 
the game. So I'm very much focused on commercial, uh, good business models and diversifying our revenue streams because we just get to put that money back in. The second part of that is impact. How do you really have sustainable programming, making multi-year commitments into communities for programs that are sustainable and measuring impact? So introducing a lot of data and insights to our programming to find out what's most effective. I tell people all the time, you can have the most, you can have the cheapest program that gets a stick in a kid's hand, but if that kid is not playing lacrosse two or three years later, it's your most expensive program. So really starting to institute much more rigor around cost per acquisition, lifetime value, best practices around retention for both boys and girls, because they are different. And they're also different where you where you live region, you know, regionally. So, you know, whether you're in a community that has resources or an under-resourced community, you've got to have the right programming that talks to that player and that coach and ensure that they've got a sustainable model to keep them playing two, three, four years down the road. And given your background on this in the sponsorship world, how much do the brand partnerships fit into that strategy? Tremendous. One of the things that we've really worked on is building platforms is that, you know, in the past, you know, we had various assets here and there. And I think every sport property on some level is guilty of that is they've they've got assets and there's always, you know, the the PowerPoint portfolio of here are all my assets and you try to bundle them together. But really, you need to build platforms. I mean, we all know that season season buyers know that season sellers know that. And I think at USA Lacrosse, that's nothing but upside, upside force in terms of really building sustainable programs that have a 12 to 24 uh, month cadence. So one, focusing on building IP that is ours. So one is the national teams. Um, the other really is around women's advocacy in the women's game. I mean, we all know women's sport is continues to be on the rise and rightfully so. We've got a great story to tell in terms of the quality of athleticism, the quality of play, but also all the other elements around whether it's empowerment or well-being mentally and physically, um, engaging uh, female fan bases and really building that year-round platform. Um you know, and, and there's a few more sports science and safety. We've really been a leader in terms of sports science and safety, but how do we transition that into high performance? How do we help players be better players 12, 24 months out of the year, no matter what level they are at, whether they're at youth, high school, or at the elite level? Hey, before we go on to our closing questions, Tim, I needed to ask Mark one more thing. Okay. Are there any... Is there any truth to the rumors that your very impressive performance at the stock exchange recently was what sent the markets into turmoil because everybody was just so amazed with how great you did? <laughs> uh, I can neither confirm nor deny that. Uh, I will say I did, as you noted, I had the opportunity to go down to the stock exchange. We had this huge fundraiser. Uh, at the Mandarin Hotel that evening back in, in New York, or first week of June. Um, and so we had a little bit of a media tour, if you will, planned around that. And uh, I got the opportunity to go on the stock exchange. It was my first time down there. And you can rest assured, the minute I walked on the floor, I got I got hit with a crosstalk. You know, there's a lot of people down there uh, that know and love the game. And it, it was it was pretty impressive. Well, you really did do a great job, by the way. Thank yep. you. Mark Riccio market mover uh, uh yeah I'm, I'm 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 hopeful i can have a positive effect on the market maybe after this one. <laughs> let's talk about the program for a second um yeah. the pll which is a relatively new league especially compared to its indoor brother the the nll the national cross league have seemed to come to a detente if you will um, but do you envision a scenario in which they somehow merge or somehow give players the opportunity to um, to finally, you know, be uh, full-time athletes in the sport of lacrosse in a way that, you know, maybe maybe hockey players or soccer players have, have been able to do. But by doing it, splitting between the indoor and the outdoor game. Listen, I would love to see that. Um, I think one of the great challenges we are facing as a sport is the calendar 
demands on our athletes. And, and, I'll, and I'll give you some examples and, and go a little further in answering your question. So I, I, if you see me look out to my left here is that I'm looking out over the field. We're in our, our corporate headquarters, which is our training facilities for our, our national teams, 45,000 square foot, beautiful facility field out here. And there's another 21 team that is in training camp for world championships this summer. But we have 60 men in here over the course of three days. Those are the senior men that are here for um, tryouts to be part of our men's national team that's competing next summer in San Diego. Well, they all have jobs. They're all pro athletes. And so they've got to go off and play this weekend in Long Island. Um, so we've got to be mindful of athlete load and ensuring that their their health and safety. And um, and the same holds true for the women. The women are doing, doing the same thing in terms of athletes unlimited, their women's national team commitments and their jobs. And that is a real challenge for the game. Now, there's a high level of coordination between the PLL, the NLL, Athletes Unlimited, and USA Lacrosse. Because we all recognize that getting the best athletes on the field, performing and, and entertaining people is in everybody's collective interest. But also keeping them well and healthy is, is core to that. So what the PLL has done is they have pushed they have innovated and, I, and I, I freaking love it. You know, they've done things around a smaller field size, two point shot. Quite frankly, these are things I'd love to see instituted on a, on a wider level throughout the men's game. I, I think they're great. Um, they've also pushed, and we honored part of that fundraiser I, I referenced. We honored Paul Rabel that night and Kyle Harrelson along with Krista Samaras. And Paul and Kyle certainly are two of the greats, Paul being, of course, one of the founders and the founder of the PLL. And what they have done and what we consistently reference is putting lacrosse in the upper echelon of all pro sports and what the expectation is in terms of the athlete experience, the coach experience, and the fan experience. And I think to get to that next level, we need to continue to elevate the athlete experience. And that is around pay and compensation. So that's when I go back to that issue of big, uh, large addressable audience. Well, if the large addressable audience continues to grow, to grow, to grow, that means scale, that means revenue, that means money gets put back in to improve the athlete experience. And so that's why I, I, as an example, I focus on that because that ultimately you can ladder that up to the athlete experience and what the PLL is trying to do in the NLL. The challenge with the PLL and the NLL is that the NLL has cross-border ownership. And when you've got ownership in Canada, ownership in the U.S., um, it, it's harder for that business to be as nimble than the PLL. Time will tell, but the, as we all know, the market always wins. And at some point, we've got to figure out a way to continue to coexist, if not help each other, um, even more strategically than we might now. So we're at that part of the interview where we like to ask every guest we have on a couple questions. And we are expecting something new and fresh out of you. First, first is an easy one. Where'd your career get started? Where'd you start So I, and I have lacrosse to thank for how I got my sport. Uh, and that's part of the reason why I'm so passionate about this job is I'm a product of the mission. So um, first I got, to college, I went to Hofstra and I actually played there. Um, and lacrosse was my pathway there. My parents didn't go to college. It was it was absolutely my pathway there. But while in college, I blew out my knee between my junior and or sophomore and junior year. That meant that I got a fifth year of eligibility. So I wanted to take advantage of that. And so I stayed and started going to grad school to play that fifth year. And because I stayed in grad school, I still had another semester. So I stuck around. And by sticking around, I, I needed to get a graduate uh, assistantship, which I did in the development office. And I got a job working on marketing and fundraising for athletics at Hofstra University. And that then led to getting to know people at the Jets who had their training facilities on campus. I worked many years at the Jets and then, you know, the, the career took off from there. But uh, it all started because I blew up my knee playing lacrosse. Go figure. <laughs> Well, sorry. About I, that, I never but... put the, I never put the two and two together. The the Jets training at Hofstra and you you going there. Yeah, that's how it I thought all you. I thought you were born. I thought you were born working for the New York Jets. Quite honestly. 
No, Mark, no. Tim's really disappointed because he thought he was talking to just someone born and bred a Jets fan like he was. No, Maybe I'm, I'm a Western New York small town kid who found his way down here. And, you know, unfortunately or unfortunately, I, I'm now a Jets fan, even after I've left and you know, left and still have many good friends there. And, you know, I pay the price for that every fall, like every other Jets fan. But I, I'm loyal. Love to and hear it. Good thing. And the last thing is what piece of advice would you give somebody that's looking to get into the sports industry? So uh, it's, it's actually a bit of two. So the first one is become an expert at something. And, and I know that sounds a bit counterintuitive when you're young and early in your career, but being an expert is all relative to, you know, your age and experience, but by being you know, an expert at something, whether that's, again, social media or sales or some something that's related to the industry or some skill, that differentiates you. Because what you've shown and demonstrated is that you have the ability to become a subject matter expert in, in something. And, and it also opens the door that you could be an expert in something else, if you will. And that is a way that I strongly believe can differentiate people because it also gives you something interesting and compelling to talk to someone about when you're in, a, in an interview or you're getting to know them. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, and this I've really, really learned later in my career is smile and, and have positive energy. I cannot tell you how many people that are smart, that are intelligent, and they just don't have the positive energy you're looking for. At the end of the day, you're like that's who you want to hang out with. Like you want to you want to work with people you want to hang out with. And smiling and bringing positive energy matters. Like it really, really does. And I know that's a bit Ted Lasso of me, but it's true. I've seen it, and and I strongly, strongly encourage people not to underestimate the the value of just being positive and smiling. Yeah, that's great, Mark. And anything Ted Lasso on this show is going to get a thumbs up. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And, and uh, Mark, we can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk to us. Um, it's uh, it, we we love having friends on as guests because, to your point, we want to associate ourselves with people we like and and respect. And uh, you know, talk about checking boxes. You definitely check those boxes with us. Well, and friends that are doing cool things too. But that's, you that's guys, a bonus for sure. You guys have done it. I appreciate that very much. You guys have done a great job. Um, I, I've enjoyed listening. I'm, I'm thrilled to be on. I was pretty pumped when you uh, threw We baited you bad for a couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah, we you did, but it was great. And I will tell you, what's, what's so cool is like you guys are talking lacrosse. I listen to other podcasts in the industry, and lacrosse is coming up. I'm telling you, there's some, there's some really fun uh, momentum around the game. Uh, but more than anything, you guys are doing a great job and it's really, it's been compelling um, content. I've quite enjoyed it um, listening. And to your point, a lot of the people have been on are friends and it's, it's great to hear their perspectives. Uh, so I've, I've enjoyed it and I'm, I'm honored to be, to be, you know, part of the guest well, we, portfolio now. Well, we appreciate that. And we want to build the program around not covering necessarily the sport that's already the most established or the biggest, but talking about the business of sport and people that are leading it. And you are an accomplished person in this business that happens to be leading a, a national governing body right now that's moving in a really positive direction. So it's great having you on. Thank you. So, Tim, that was a really fun interview with Mark. It was great to get the insights on where lacrosse is going. Uh, we appreciate him taking some time. So this is the time of the show where we try to take a little look ahead. Tim, what do you got your eye on? Well, we talked about it earlier. I'm going to have my eyes on the U.S. Open this weekend um, for a couple of things. I want to see some great golf. But I want to see also how the Live Golf uh, issue continues to be or not be as the case may be addressed and I you know I think we're both in agreement that it will continue to be front and center in any golf discussion um, especially if some of the players who are precluded from playing on the PGA Tour but are allowed to play in uh, the U.S. Open um, come to Brookline and have to sit in front of uh, 
the media. What about yourself? What are you going to be looking at? Well, first of all, on that point, I think you're totally right. It's not going to be lost. Brooks Kepka came out here recently and is basically telling the reporters, please don't ask me about live golf. And he's someone that's still committed to the PGA tour. So I think they're having a rough time with it, uh, but it's not going away. It's a, it's an important business story and important golf story for sure. Um, Exciting week in the world of soccer in that we are going to learn this week uh, what cities in North America are going to be hosting uh, the world cup uh, in 2026 when it comes to North America. So uh, it's been reported that um, uh, a couple of the Canadian markets have been picked um, and Toronto yeah. and Vancouver sure. look to be the ones uh, that yeah, will be ten, hosting. 10 out of 10 out of the 48 matches. Right. Um, we'll, we'll see if that, you know, that certainly wouldn't be a surprise, right? Um, two of the largest cities in, in the country. Yeah, and covers um, the Eastern and Western part of the country for sure. Right, um, and MLS and MLS Cup uh, right. or MLS uh, markets as well. Right. So big soccer supporting markets. Right, and so the markets that are expected to be named from the U.S. obviously include New York and Los Angeles and Miami and Seattle. I was a little disappointed, I have to say, that I didn't see Chicago there. It's kind of bumming me out a bit because Chicago has a nice history with the sport. Um, but it's uh, it's big, and that's going to be an exciting. World Cup when it comes, three countries sharing the opportunity to host. Uh, I think it's a very great move for FIFA. Um, and uh, so it's uh, something to get fired up about even before World Cup heads uh, to our television screens this fall. All right. Well, as always, David, I've enjoyed our conversation and really uh, appreciate Mark Riccio. I'm a big fan of his. Yeah, I know. It's really been a fun show, I have to say. And uh, Mark's kind of that guy you really cheer for. Uh, and I'm excited to see what he's doing at USA Lacrosse. So we thank him for taking some time with us. And of course, we thank you for spending some time with us as well. It's much appreciated. But be sure to give us your feedback, review us, connect with us on Twitter or LinkedIn. We'd really love to hear from you. So until next week... I'm DP, he's McGee, we'll talk soon.